Good morning. Welcome to the gathering of the Saints of Vintage Church. So happy to be here with you today. I'm so blessed to know that before the foundation of the world, God foreordained this time for us to be able to worship together as believers, to be able to praise His name, to be able to read the Word of God. I trust that this week, this Sunday, is just a culmination of all that you've been doing to follow the Lord this week, that you've been studying, that you've been praying, that you've been looking for opportunities to share the gospel with others. I trust that that's something that you are consistently doing so that when you come here, um, you get your, uh, your energy boost, your energy shot, your steroids, so to speak, so that you can continue on throughout the week doing the same thing. I trust that today is not your only source of godliness or uh, spiritual development, but it's just another piece of a larger puzzle. So thankful to be here with you today. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to worship with the saints. We're going to move on into chapter 10 of Romans, and it feels sort of like I can stand up here and give you a sigh of relief a little bit because... Although Romans 9 was fruitful and full, uh, it was, it's difficult. It's difficult to hear, it's difficult to understand, and even sometimes it's difficult to apply. And so I feel like there's sort of a sigh of relief going into Romans 10, but Romans 10 and 11 aren't necessarily <laughs> much easier. So hopefully we'll all learn something. I want to tell you uh, humbly, I'm still learning. Uh, Every day, I'm still learning from this. I'm still being taught. I have never done as in-depth of a study into Romans as I'm doing right now. And so I'm still learning along with you. Uh, So if you ever see me super excited, it's probably because it it felt new to me. And I wanted you to feel the same way that I felt. We're going to go into Romans chapter 10, as was read before, verses 1 through 3. I think it would be, we'd be missing out if we didn't just remind you last week of, we discussed Israel trying to, form, trying to find a form of righteousness. Uh, they wanted to work, and they wanted to work their way. They wanted to make it uh, their rules, their parameters, their methods in order to find righteousness. And what Jesus did was, Um, blew up that entire system of self-righteousness. The Jews said, this is the way. And Jesus said, I am the way. And when he said, I am the way, it fractured everything that they had been trying. Everything that they had been doing. And Paul says today, we've already read it and I'll read it again, that they were zealous. They were passionate. They were fervent, is what zealous means. To follow God, but what they found is they were following God in their own form. Mm -hmm. They even made up more forms. And when Jesus broke that form, he where he was intended to be the cornerstone for those who would believe, he is the cornerstone for those who would believe, he became a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. There's this uh, it reminds me every time, and I didn't mention it last week, but there's this little raised level in my driveway. And we had a party uh, with you guys around, I think it was the Thanksgiving party and, uh, or something. And I was cooking outside and uh, 
Blake came back around. Blake went to go get something. He came back around the corner and he was like dusting himself off. I was like, what is going on? He's like, Bryce, your driveway is raised over there. I was like, oh, did it almost get you? He's like, no, I rolled straight over. And that's what, when I think about that, that's like a small rut or something that you don't like necessarily expect or see. Jesus wasn't this, for those people, he wasn't this, uh, he wasn't this magnificent diamond. Like he was a Lego. You know what I'm saying? He was a Lego. You don't know what a Lego, you don't know what I mean by that? You hadn't had kids in a while, right? Or little kids in a while, right? A Lego is a, a landmine in the middle of the floor, right? He was a Lego. He was something that they didn't see, they didn't expect, but it was always causing them trouble. And, uh, or he was a piece of concrete sticking out. He was a root that trips you up. Or that, for me, with weak ankles that I roll my ankles on. But for us, for those who believe... So much different. So much different. Not a rock of offense. Not a stumbling stone. Not a Lego that you hurt your foot on almost every day. But a cornerstone. A stone that literally everything... This is is the insignificance. There were two stones. And I didn't mention this because I didn't want to get into it. And now here's a side sermon. There were two stones that are mentioned in the Bible. A cornerstone and a capstone. The capstone was the center stone in the middle of an arch, and it kept the structure of the building together. Jesus was called the capstone. The cornerstone is the stone that literally every other measurement was measured off of. He is the cornerstone. Every measurement in our life, every every strength of our building, every strength of our structure comes from Him. Alright, I'm done with that side sermon. I want to pray with you today. And let's get into Romans 10, 1-3. God, You are so good. All of our strength, all of our might, the, the surety of our structure is bound up in You. Lord, help Your Gospel, Your words, Your, your, um, your righteousness, Your truth that You ask us to follow, not to be a stumbling stone to us, but help it to be something that we follow, Lord, in spirit and in truth, and that we live for. Not to be a rock of offense, not to be a pebble sticking out of the ground that trips us up, but something that gives us strength to be sanctified, to be holy as you are holy. Lord, we love you so much. We praise you. We know that it is sure for those who believe that we will be holy as you are holy because you have given us the power at the moment of salvation to be like you in the ways that you have prescribed. We love you so much. We praise you. We give you today. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last week we discussed the calamity of unbelief, but this week we will look at the failure of unbelief. There will be some overlapping ideas and thoughts, but overall we'll look at the failure of unbelief. We are really in the... You've heard me say this about a million times. We are really in the largest probably time of unbelief in the history of the world. And I say that, maybe there have been times where there's a larger swath of non-Christians, but I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the world where there has been more gospel and less believers. Do you understand what I'm saying? We live in a time where there is more gospel and less believers. As a matter of fact, I was having this conversation with a friend. America and the West will be held... The people of the West will be held at a much higher standard 
for their um, recognition and response to the gospel. Because we have been revealed and we have in us uh, every outlet possible to seeing the truth of Jesus Christ. And I would say this, we live in a time, and I think it started somewhere around the 1700s, we live in a time where, whereas for a long time, much of the entire world accepted the Christian ideology, it is uh, unacceptable at this point. Uh, it was brought about by postmodernism. Postmodernism is the way of thinking where everything is relative, where uh, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and there's no absolute truth. But we really live in a post-postmodern era where, where not only is truth just okay as long as you're staying in your lane, but truth and religion are unacceptable now. They are not even acceptable as, a, um, as, an, uh, as an okay route to go in your life. As a matter of fact, you will see very soon they will be seen as harmful as detrimental to society, as maybe even terrorism. Postmodernism is the belief that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and we live sort of in a post-postmodern era, but most of that was, most of where we live right now is brought on by postmodern ideology. Basically, postmodern ideology says if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because of your social upbringing and your geographical location. If you were you, born in a different part of the country, you absolutely wouldn't be a Christian. That's what postmodernism would tell you. Uh, or a different part of the world, you absolutely wouldn't be a Christian. But, and that basically, essentially saying that your spirituality is not spirituality at all, but it's a result of your environment. Um, postmodernism not only is a worldly thought, but it has crept into the church. It causes us to take for granted what the Bible meant as literal. Now, I believe that there is figurative language in the Bible, and I think that that can be seen as literal because figurative language is a literary device. I'm not trying to confuse you here, but there are things in the Bible that are supposed to be taken as literal, as they were said. I think postmodernism has crept in and has at least caused to doubt for a large portion of believers, a seven-day creation or a literal resurrection. Postmodernism tells that can't be true because that does not jive with what we know right now. Postmodernism has led many Christian leaders to treat the Bible and the church as a suggestion or as a side item and not the main course. What this does is it belittles the role of holiness in the life of a believer. It dilutes the purpose of the church by making the church a place for the lost and not a place for the saved. You may not have realized this, but the church gathering, the Sunday morning church gathering, is not a place for the lost. It is a place where the saints gather to worship, encourage, and move about in the, and understand and learn about the task of saving the lost. If a lost person is a part of a church, and they come and they're a part of a church fellowship and they're saved, that is just the fringe benefits of the, of the saved people of God sharing the gospel with each other. But we have lost the purpose of the church by making it about the lost and not the saved. 
When the role of the pastor is intended to be ushering people to the throne of God, many with postmodernist thought in their mind are doing nothing more than ushering a generation of zealous people directly to hell. Today, uh, I want to look at the failure of unbelief and how Christians should respond to unbelieving people or to an unbelieving society. So the failure of unbelief. Look at what Paul says again in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, uh, prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish her own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul here is in great distress. Everything he said, everything he like went over mentally and wrote down in Romans 9 is is why he's distressed. His people in general have rejected the Messiah. Paul feels this stress probably more than others because a short time ago, he was this person. A zealous, self-righteous person who missed the mark. Who in his zeal, he said, and we'll see it again later, persecuted the church. You probably feel this also. When we experience something firsthand, something fantastic, whether it's good or bad, there is this innate desire to warn. Now, some of you are probably so introverted when you see somebody going down a path you've gone down before or doing something you've done before, you might not warn them, but there is this desire in your heart to warn, right? I am an extrovert, so when I see that, like I'm yelling, like I'm screaming, I'm warning. If you don't believe me, think about the exit of a, of, a, of a really wild roller coaster or a haunted house. How many of you have, how many of you have gone to a haunted house before or, or done a crazy roller coaster? And as you're exiting, you're seeing the line and in your mind you're thinking, if they only knew what they were about to go through. Like there is this innate desire in you to go tell them, like look, there's this one spot. If you haven't gone to the restroom yet, you probably need to do that before you hit this spot over here. You want to warn them and, you know, because of some sort of crazy, you know, sensation in you, you probably want them to be scared to death too so you don't say anything. But don't you feel this desire, this innate desire to, to warn, especially if it's something that you've experienced? I check myself all the time because I have this desire to uh, quote unquote, but in where uh, I might not be wanted. I tend to give unsolicited advice a little bit. So I have to check myself all the time. But I will tell you, it is the most, the most difficult I ha- time I have in keeping my mouth shut is if it's a place, if I'm warning someone or worried about warning someone about a place or a thing, I've, a place I've been to or a thing I've done. Especially with young men about relationships and career paths and, you know, the list can go on. My desires and distress for these people increase when I can see someone taking a wrong path. And I know the result of that wrong path because I've been there before. 
And that's where we find Paul today. He is in deep distress over the lack of faith of his country that he loves. A rejection of God's Messiah. God's fulfillment of all that they had longed for. Of the entire religious system that they had set up. His, God's fulfillment had come and they had missed it. What I want to do is I want to look at three areas that Paul discusses where his people had missed the mark. And over time, I'm going to try to, over these areas, over these three areas, I'm going to try to give you how I think Christians should respond to unbelief. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul goes through an entire explanation in chapter 9 about why so many people rejected God. And he says, listen, he says, or if, if it was me saying it as Paul, he says, I'm not a robot here, people. I haven't just come to the knowledge of truth without any real feelings. I'm not just here saying, well, God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. And God has saved them and he will do his will on earth as it is in heaven. And whether they believe or not is up to God. I'm not just up here saying all of these things that are true, but seem disconnected from the reality that if these people do not believe, they will spend an eternity under the wrath of God. Paul says, I'm not a robot. He says, I feel this loss. I feel their rejection in my bones. I am distressed by this. This knowledge that these people, my people, are rejecting the Savior. As people of this world, friends, we will face general disappointment. All the time, right? We will face disappointment just like everyone else in the world. But as Christians, there is an extra level of disappointment, right? It seems that way at least because on some level... We are called to meet this standard of perfection, right? Be perfect as I am perfect. And we're, always, we're constantly missing the mark. So we're disappointing ourselves by missing the mark, right? But also, we have all of these people who, as we're trying to go down this path of sanctification, we have all of these people that we know and love that are rejecting the truth of the gospel, that are living in unbelief. And so there's this constant level of disappointment, of distress, of anxiety, of hurt, of pain, because people that we love do not believe the very truths of the gospel that are so easy, because of the Holy Spirit in us, are so easy to see. You feel it deep. Christianity, then, I, I need you to hear this. This is just a sub-idea. It's not a point, but it's something to take home. Christianity is a felt religion. It cannot be just something that you uh, go through in rote. You cannot just memorize the steps of Christianity. You feel the religion of Christianity. You feel the lostness of a soul. You feel when someone moves away who was once following Jesus. You feel it in your bones. Or you may not be alive to God. Christianity is not just a religion that you can go through point by point, form by form, task by task. You have to feel it. And you feel it because God feels it. It is not as the postmodern asserts. Unbelief is not a random result of circumstance. And neither is belief. Belief then is a result of Christ in us. 
And the result of Christ in us, and this is why Christianity is a felt religion, the result of Christ in us is the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ looks on the lost with longing as Christ desires that all men everywhere repent. The mind of Christ will not allow us to look at the world with indifference. But we feel it. We feel it. We look not at lostness with a postmodern stance or a postmodern slant that says they are doing the best that they can with what they know. We are do- they are doing the best that they can with the lot that they've been cast. Postmodernism then is the, partic- is the pinnacle of the participation trophy society. We should look at the world the way Jesus sees it and the way Paul felt. The ultimate truth is that there is one name given among men whereby we must be saved. And there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. And those men and women who do not reject their unbelief and then trust in Christ by faith will face a true punishment and wrath. And after all failure and unbelief, is, and, and all that failure and unbelief is ultimately on the, on the, on the shoulders of of the unbeliever. They are responsible for all of that. And if we cannot look at that as a believer, knowing the truth, if we cannot look at that and mourn and have sorrow that calls, that leads us to action, then there's something wrong with us. So how, does, how do we address this then? I gave it away a little bit on accident. What is the Christian response? Paul said first, the Christian response is a desire that leads to action. Paul says, my heart's desire, what he's saying is my deepest internal longing is that they would be saved. Where does this come from? Where does this longing come from? It comes from Holy Spirit indwelling. So as Christians, we should first check ourselves to see if we do and why we don't if we don't have a passion to attack the unbelief in others. I am convinced that our desire for the lost is a sure sign of Jesus Christ in us. Because that desire can only come from the Holy Spirit and cannot be man-made. So friends, what we need to understand and know is that over time, if there is not a present, and I would say even an increasing desire to see the lost saved, it it tells more about us than it does the power of God. It says more about us than it does the lostness of man. If the desire isn't there, what it says to me is that we are in a moment of stagnation, or we are unregenerate. Those are really the only two answers to a lack of desire to see the law saved. So what do we do? We make sure that we are in the faith. We make sure that the Holy Spirit indwells in us. We pray then. If we know if there's so many, I'm not saying this is the only proof. So if there are so many other proofs that the Holy Spirit is in us, we pray that the Holy Spirit gives us the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, so that we can see the world the way He sees the world. And when we see the world the way He sees the world, there is no option but to a longing and a distress for the lost. 
We pray that our faith would increase. That God would increase our longing for the lost. And then we boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are not saved. We inconvenience ourselves. We embarrass ourselves. We give up our time. We crawl over broken glass if we have to. But when God has changed our lives in salvific power, it will produce a longing in us to bring that salvation to the rest of the world. This longing in us, I believe, should be present. It should be tangible and ever increasing. Paul says, I have a desire that leads me to action for these people. And what was one of the action steps he took? Prayer. Prayer. We should pray for the lost. The most important prayer, friends, that you can pray for anyone is not a prayer that, a sick would, that the sick would be healed. It's not the prayer for prosperity in a job. It's not the prayer for reconciliation in a marriage. The most important prayer that you can pray for someone is that the lost may be saved. The most important prayer that you can pray for your children is for their salvation. I would assert to you that because it is the most important prayer, it might be the only prayer necessary until they're saved. It might be the only prayer necessary until they, become, until they come to Christ. That they might be saved. We should fervently, persistently, and in a God-honoring spiritual manner pray for those caught in unbelief. You may ask, if salvation is all about God, and He saves some and He passes over others, why should we pray? I'm glad that you asked that. People do ask that all the time. I'm glad that you asked that today. Number one, because God commands it. And as Christians, we are called to do what God commands. Another reason is that even though God ordains the end, He still uses us for the means. Right? He ordains the end. He still uses us for the means. Not only that, but Jesus modeled this type of prayer for believers. And friends, this is most important. And don't ever lose this in your belief in the sovereignty of God. God answers prayers. God answers prayers. The prayers of the righteous man availeth much. When someone knows that I'm a Calvinist, when someone knows I believe in Reformed theology, they say, why would you ever even share the gospel if you believe that these things are true? And I say, I share the gospel for the same reason that I get up and I read my Bible every day. You want to know why? Because I don't read my Bible in the hopes that God teaches me something. I read the Bible because God commanded it and I know that it glorifies God to do it. If I never learned anything from the Bible, God commanded it and it brings Him glory when I do it and that's enough. Learning from God through, the, through His Word is a fringe benefit of obeying God. Salvation of the lost is a fringe benefit of obeying God. And we don't, we don't evangelize so that people would be saved. We evangelize because God commands it. The Holy Spirit indwells us and pushes us to. And we are being obedient so that God receives the glory. God commands it. Even though He ordains the ends, He uses us for the means. Jesus prayed in this manner and God answers prayers. 
I want to tell you something. When we pray for the lost, especially loved ones, God opens our hearts to more than just those that we had on our mind. If we start praying fervently for the lost, start with someone in your family if you haven't started already. And if you already are, add somebody to your list. What happens is when we pray for people who are lost, we become acutely aware of the lostness of the rest of the world. And our longing and our desire and our prayer list broadens. He reveals in us lostness everywhere. And often we get an overwhelming sensation even to share the gospel. And when we share what God has done in us and what He has done in others, we refine our skills and become better at gospel proclamation. Friends, we need to proclaim the gospel. And I will offer you any help that you need. But how many of you said, I just don't know how, I'm not looking for you to raise your hands, but I just don't know how to share the gospel. How many of you have thought that? I just don't know how to share the gospel. I just don't know what I would say. I just don't want to mess it up. The same people that have thought that are the same people that would Google and YouTube how to do their own floor. Or how to change their own oil. Or how to change a belt in their car. The same people that would do that, the same people that would say, I don't know how to, che- I don't know how to share the gospel, are the same people that if they had a desire to see something fixed in another area of their life, would research until they found out the solution. And if they, didn't find, if they weren't able to personally find out the solution, you know what they would also do? They would go and find someone else who they consider an expert to help them or to to do it along with them. And if you're lazy like me, sometimes you get people to do it for for you, but that doesn't that that's where the illustration falls apart. <laughs> and that's just about being lazy. Holy Spirit indwells us. He leads us and puts in us, He places in us a desire for action, a desire for prayer, which, friends, almost always comes out in some form of gospel, verbal gospel proclamation. We have so many people. And I hate to say this, but we have so many people who fall into the feed me society. Where we don't do much unless it is fed to us or we're asked. I hope this doesn't come across as arrogant to you, but I, want, I need you to hear this. Every year we do a SWOT analysis. And every year, some of the same things in the SWOT analysis come up. Commitment to preaching. Commitment to uh, intentional worship music. Things of that nature. Friends, there there have been times in our church, and I would say maybe just as much as the other, where the only... we, We like to think of our church as different 
But the only difference in our church and the one down the road is the teaching and the music. Because we've got a congregation full of people, I'm guilty of this myself, who are just wanting to be fed. Who are just wanting to be fed. There have been times where we've known better, where we've thought better, and we've been motivated better. But there have been times where, although we like to call ourselves vintage, which means getting back to the, to the old and, and, and really pulling things out that, that are unnecessary, that, that we are no different than those churches that we sort of turn our nose up at because we're getting fed and we're getting nurtured and that's it. One of the distinguishing factors of our church should be that the depth of what you're being fed should lead you to a deeper movement as it concerns the gospel of Jesus Christ. A deeper understanding of what it means to share the gospel and our responsibility in that. A deeper understanding of holiness and what it means to... I'm guilty of this too. I'm guilty of just feeding you sometimes and that, and that being the sufficiency for that week or that time. And I fear here, because here is my greatest fear in this time. And this is, this is side sermon number two of the day. And it's going to extend this sermon out, so y'all are just going to have to tough it up. The greatest, the greatest negative of Corona in the church may be that we never reboot. It may be that we're comfortable. We, we even vintage gets comfortable with these sort of peripheral relationships. We get comfortable with social distancing as it comes to as it pertains to spiritual life. At some point, friends, life is going to go back to semi-normalcy. And we're going to have to figure out a way, if not right now, we're going to have to figure out a way to be intentional again. Not just people who are fed. Not just people who receive. Because eventually what we will find is the pastors, the leaders of the church, the cup, the pitcher that they were pouring from, will run out. The reason vintage has operated so highly for so long is because there were a picture. It was like this perpetual amount of picture, pitchers that were just sort of always pouring into each other. There were pitchers from the congregation that were pouring into the pastors and the pastors were pouring into the people and the people were pouring into each other. We're going to have to reboot at some point. And I think our rebooting comes from a, a revisiting of the mindset that this is not an indictment on social distancing or mask or anything else, but revisits the mindset that we put others and that above ourselves.
that we move back to real deep community. And we're doing that. We're doing that. I'm not, this is not like we are missing the mark altogether. But it's something we have to be cautious about. It's something we have to recognize. Godly community is not just something that you can have on Sunday morning. It is, a, it is something that is enriched by multiple instances of church community gathering. It is emphasized and influenced by prayer. By a desire to bring the gospel to the saved and a desire to bring the gospel to the lost. I'll jump back into our text for today. Sorry. So one of the one of the major one of the major um, causes or one of the major failures of unbelief is an unfulfilled desire. Another is an empty zeal. Look at verse two. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The people of God were zealous for God. They were fired up. They were sincere. They were active and they were still headed to hell. Zeal is often in churches in this time. It's a substitute for conversion. Emotion is a substitute for conversion. Many people in churches place a high priority on emotion so that their services are packed full of them. And here is something deeply important. Paul says that, that zeal without knowledge is fruitless. Many churches have high emotional services, high emotional meetings, and they are nothing more than Pavlovian experiences. Here's the deal, friends. And I'm not, I'm not bashing that old time religion. I'm not bashing some good hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm not bashing hymns because we sing a lot of them. I'm not bashing the type of music you like because we do a lot of them. But, but oftentimes, our response to music and to words and to altar calls are Pavlovian more than they are spiritual. We have been trained when we hear the, the, the ding of the bell. We have been trained to have an emotional response to what is about to happen. You know what I mean by Pavlovian, right? Pavlov's dog. They were trained to where when they heard the bell, they knew that it was food time and they would, even if food wasn't present, they would immediately salivate. Church often, especially in high emotional churches, becomes nothing more than a Pavlovian experience. These Jews took their religion very seriously. Friends, the number of secular Jewish people at that time was very small. Very small. They were emotionally involved. Paul calls them zealous. Zealous. Fervent for the law. He echoed this in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. Excuse me, Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, 
a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I can relate with you. I can relate with you. I had it too. We were there together. We both had zeal. Paul in his zeal killed Christians. Paul kept the law. He called it blameless. In his mind, it would have been perfectly. And yet he missed the mark. And here's what Paul says. Paul says fervency. He says emotion. He says zeal without knowledge. Without knowledge does not equal salvation. Does not equal repentance. Knowledge is of first importance. More than zeal. Friends, you need to hear this. Christianity is a teaching religion. Jesus' entire ministry, although we like to emphasize that he healed, the, he healed and he raised the dead and things like that, which are vastly important, his entire ministry was a teaching ministry. One commentator pointed this out, and I thought it would be helpful for you. It was for me. In Mark 1, Jesus had healed at Peter's house, and a great crowd had come. The crowd came larger and larger overnight. And the disciples wanted Jesus to go back and he wanted them to do more healing because it was a crowd of sick people waiting to be healed. And he wanted them to do more healing. The disciples wanted Jesus to go back. They wanted him to seize the opportunity to, to show who he was, to let the world know, to let a vast majority of people know who he was, to gain some more notoriety. But Jesus had determined that there was no greater ministry than the ministry of teaching. Not healing, not general ministry. In Mark 1.38, Jesus said, Let us go to another town that I can preach. That is why I came out. Not healing, not general ministry. We know it wasn't general ministry because deacons were created in Acts 6. Not tongues. Because even though Paul spoke in tongues, he said in 1 Corinthians, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in tongues. Not fellowship. Nothing was more important than the teaching ministry of Jesus. And he left that with us. Because friends, knowledge is one of the first, if not the first keys to faith. Faith must be, according, must be found according to right Knowledge And right knowledge rightly brings precision. Paul calls this precision epinosis. The Gnostics had a lot of knowledge. Gnosis, the word gnosis brings us the word Gnostics. They had a lot of knowledge. But their, not, their knowledge was not founded upon the knowledge of the righteousness of God. Epinosis then is what Paul is saying here. He's saying this knowledge, this epinosis is knowledge according to. To godliness. I think sometimes we think. We put. It's a dangerous slope. Because we can put a lot of emphasis on knowledge. And not a, and not a lot of emphasis on the rest. We know that knowledge without spiritual development and spiritual change is fruitless. But we also know that emotion. That zeal. Without knowledge, godly knowledge is also fruitless. I think both, the vast majority of time, both of those are damning even. I'm going to give you the last thought and then I want to go back and give you some practical responses for Christians. A self-righteousness. 
of self-righteousness. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here is the problem with letting zeal and emotion lead. Here is the problem with letting postmodern thought creep in. There is no bullseye. There's no bullseye. Here's what we do. We throw darts at the, at the wall. I've done this to you before a long time ago, so maybe some of you remember it. We throw darts at the wall, no target in mind, and then we go up to the wall and we say, bullseye. That's exactly where I was aiming. That's exactly where I was trying to go. Our society now says that not just there is no bullseye, they say, but a bullseye is offensive because it leaves so many people out. So it leads to a bunch of self-righteous and made-up righteousness. Friends, I want to tell you, we're going to be influenced by society, I know. That's just the nature of sin. But one way we cannot be influenced by society is in truth. We must understand that there is a bullseye. We must understand that we will fail to meet that bullseye. But the goal is not to go and, and arrange the bullseye around our darts. But the goal is to pull our darts out of the board, come back, and try again. Amen. Try again. And what that creates, friends, is godly precision. What the other creates is a perceived success. What, what retrying, what understanding, you're not a failure if you fail, you're only a failure if you stop trying. What retrying is, it creates precision. Because when you practice, when you continue on in moving in righteousness, when you continue on in practicing the things of God, eventually that bullseye looks bigger and bigger and bigger. Tiger Woods, in his, in when, he was, when he was at his height, he got LASIK eye surgery. And Tiger Woods was already like a superhero at the time of golf. And they asked him, how do things look now that you have LASIK eye surgery? And he says, the fairways look wider and the holes look bigger. And he was already the greatest golfer in golf. But friends, what happens is when we, when we do this practice, when we, when, we put, when we surround ourselves with these things that bring about righteousness, we create precision. And the bullseye looks bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what we see in 1 John when we see that the commandments of God are not a burden to, to the people of God. It's a burden when the bullseye is small, I'm telling you. So close. So close. But as we grow in the Lord, it's, it, I, be, I believe this with all my heart. It is not always this way, but it's easier and easier to hit the target. Zeal and emotion without knowledge leads to self-righteousness. This is the path of many because it's easy. It is as little or as much as you want it to be. It is as difficult or as easy as you want it to be. It is as far-reaching as you desire. And it is always self-approved. It's easy to look at that target or look at your darts on the wall and draw a circle around it and be like, look at me. 
I did pretty good. Another golf illustration, since that's what I'm on, and Stephen loves that I play golf. Uh, I'm just kidding. Driving at the driving range, it's fantastic. Because you go out there and you hit, and you hit all of these balls, and they go far, and they go high, and they go long, and you're like, I have figured out golf. I have figured it out. And then you go and actually play a round of golf. And guess what there are that are not on the driving range? There's trees and water and sand and grass like this that you lose a ball in that you would never think you would lose a ball in grass. That's one of the most frustrating things in the world. We've got to get onto the golf course every once in a while, friends, to really see if we're hitting the mark. Knowledge brings about precision, and precision brings great success, but also greater room for mistakes and failures. So we're going to have to be willing to fail if we accept righteousness. We have to be willing to make mistakes. We have to be willing to be embarrassed, be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to not hide our insecurities, but embrace those so that others who have gone along that path can help us. Our study and the knowledge of God should look more like the plans to build a house than the plan to seed your yard. You build the house with plans and precision and you seed your yard just by casting out seed and it lies where it lies. Our knowledge should look more like an accountant's checkbook balance sheet than it should look like mine. Friends, there are two types of righteousness. There's ours and there are God's. There is God's. Ours is a social quality formed by avoidance of the most depraved sins and by accumulation of certain good, but it never adds up to the righteousness of God. God's is His very righteousness imputed, given to us so that we may be like Him. His righteousness is in His very nature. It is His very nature. It is also called holiness. And it is what makes Him unlike us. And looking back at what Paul said in Philippians 3, he says, but whatever I had gained as a zealous Jewish Pharisee, I count loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing what? Does he say emotion? Does he say connection? Does he say uh, fellowship? No, he says the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Godly knowledge produces desire that produces emotional zeal that receives the righteousness of God. So what is the answer for believers? How do we respond to this for unbelievers? How do we respond to this for ourselves? We need to be precise in our zeal. We need to be precise in our zeal. How do we do that? I think one way we do that is to be diligent in examining everything. Everything. We need to be known as Bereans. Every sermon that is taught, we need to double back and examine that I or someone else is saying the right thing. Every book that we read, 
every story that we read on the internet, everything that we hear about someone. This goes into social issues also. We need to be diligent in examining everything. We need to be confident in the source. Friends, I want to tell you, and I, and I, I mean this with all of my heart. The only time I'm ever nervous in preaching is when I'm preaching to a new crowd. Not when I'm preaching a text. Do you understand the difference? I'm never nervous preaching to you anymore because I know that you are willing to accept the truth and I'm just going to preach the truth. And so we, in our in social realm and also in our life, in our spiritual life, we should consider the source. And for us, spiritually, if the source is the Bible, our final arbiter on all things, we have all the confidence in the world that when we share the gospel, that when we preach, when we take a stand, we're, stake, we're taking a stand on absolute truth. And no matter if we're rejected or not for that, we can be confident of the source and confident of the truth. Be godly in our application. Friends, we cannot just go on being zealous, seeing truth, and then applying it the way we want to apply it. You need to hear this. There's only one truth in every text of every page of the Bible. There's only one truth. There are many ways to apply that truth, but there's only one truth. We can even take those applications and we can apply them in ungodly ways. This is why you see people proof texting and taking text out of context. Because they try to apply a singular truth in an ungodly way. So the best way that we can apply a truth in a godly way is to understand, find the original context of what God was saying through that truth. And then we speak that truth confidently without a personal, social, political lean. Be diligent in our examination of everything. Be confident in the source. And be godly in our application of the truth. Friends, if we want to see people saved, it's simply allowing the Holy Spirit to renew in us a mind of the mind of Christ. And when we have that mind, the natural tendency is for a believer to respond as Christ would. And that was leaving the 99 to bring one into the flock. That was an abandonment of the people, not an abandonment, but a rejection of the people who rejected Him in order that those who He called might be saved. Now we're not exactly Jesus, but He gives us the passion and the desire and the ability to bring about the end of unbelief in people's lives. He has determined the end, but He uses us as the means. And the Spirit of God in me tells me I want to be used. I want to be used. And I also want to make sure that I've done everything I can to see those that I love come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, You're so good. And we are constantly missing the mark. Lord, would you help us not let our failure in missing the mark cause us to stop 
shooting. Help us to keep firing for the target that you have given. The goal that you have given. God, would you renew in Vintage Church a desire for the lost. A desire to get out of our own bubbles. To get out of our own comfort. And to proclaim the love of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Why else are we here? Surely we can't be here to gain a little bit of wealth, to gain a little bit of comfort, and then be with you for forever. We're here as recruiters. Help us to recruit. In the name of Jesus. We love you so much. We praise you. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability and the desire to do it all. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We have a time of communion like we do on a weekly basis. This is two things. There's two things that you need to know and we say it every week. This is a time of response. This is a time where you need to... If, you're, if 